The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It's just too soon to assess with any confidence the implications of the news for the path of the economy, especially in the near term. And I would say with the virus now spreading, spreading, the next few months could be challenging. So U.S. markets take a hit after Fed Chair Jerome Powell cautions on a quick return to pre-COVID growth rates, while cases stateside hit another daily record. The S&P 500 losing most of the week's vaccine-based gains. Amongst us, we have been extremely engaged, active, we coordinated, uh, we, we faced uh, the storm uh, together and we, we really closed ranks. Central bank chiefs held their joint response at the ECB forum while executive board member Isabel Schnabel tells CNBC exclusively that agility will be key for the second wave. We are now in a very different situation than in March because financial conditions are extremely benign and we do not face a market disturbance. And this is also why I think we cannot just do the same all over again, but we have to rethink. Uh, NBC News projects that Joe Biden is the winner in Arizona. That's nine days after the polls closed, further cementing his presidential win as Democrats flip the state. That's for the first time since 1996. President Trump issues an order banning American investment into Chinese companies with ties to the military, claiming they, quote, directly threaten U.S. security. And the CEO of Prudential talks health technology at CNBC's East Tech West, saying his business model will never be the same after COVID. I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the new normal phrasing, but I, think, I don't think you're going to go back to a pre-COVID business model in any sense. Now, I don't know what a collective is for three of the most powerful central bankers gathered together. A power pod, a QE of central bankers. Have you got a classifier? Trio of bankers. A trio of bankers. (laughs) Come on, more imaginative than that. (laughs) A trio of super Marios. (laughs) We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Three of the world's top central bankers then have warned the immediate global outlook remains uncertain despite this week's news of a COVID vaccine breakthrough. Sorry to uh, ruin your Friday morning, but Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, ECB President Christine Lagarde and the Bank of England's Andrew Bailey took part virtually in the ECB's annual forum on central banking. Uh, Powell warned the recovery would remain muted until people truly feel feel safe to resume their normal daily lives. The main risk we see today, we, we, we do see that the uh, economy continuing on a solid path of recovery, but the main risk we see of that, to that is clearly the further spread of the disease here in the United States. Uh, we've got new cases at a record level. Uh, we've seen a number of states begin to reimpose limited uh, activity restrictions and people may lose confidence that it's safe to go out. Uh, we've said from the beginning that the economy will not fully recover until 
people are confident that it's safe to resume activities involving crowds of people. A dose of reality there from Jerome Powell and markets responding in kind. You can see a reversal across the board. So very different playbook to what we've had over the last couple of sessions. Investors stopped rotating that equities portfolio from the technology to the beatdown areas, from beatdown areas back to technology and just sold off equities altogether. You can see across the board the reversal, 1% of the Dow, the S&P, at the extent of the fall, so 300 plus points for the Dow. Slightly less coming off the Nasdaq, but still being sold off in kind. But investors also paying attention to the rise in hospitalizations in the United States on the back of uh, the increase in COVID cases, looking at some of the language from various parts of the country about more restrictions to tame the pandemic. That was a big negative for markets after the euphoria from early in the week about a vaccine being in sight. So just take a look at uh, how we have traveled over the course of the week. It's clearly been a give back to trade so far, but uh, markets, as you can see, uh, stronger over the course of the week, about 2.6% for the Dow, a little bit less on the S&P, less than 1%. And in fact, for the Nasdaq, given the rotation theme that we've witnessed, it's been down about one and a half percent. So let's see how today plays out. But it was pointing out the rotation that we witnessed on U.S. markets has also been beneficial for other trades across in the Asia Pacific, but also right here in Europe, where we've seen a very strong trade. We've still got about eight odd percent on the French market just this week. So very solid gains uh, positioned elsewhere away from some of those U.S. trades. One of the beneficiaries yesterday, the traditional safe haven flows as we saw money leaving the equity market and going back into treasuries and gold at the yield, you can see 0.87%. So pulling below that 1% mark as investors, very conscious now about whether there's more work to be done on the monetary side and just where that fiscal stimulus is that may support markets, given that there's still going to be a number of months and a number of targeted sectors may still need assistance to weather this pandemic, Steve. Karen, thank you very much indeed for that. Right, let me just uh, move on. I'm just looking at various... I've got my dictionary out, Karen, my old school dictionary with the old crest on the front. And I've found that the collective for bankers, there's four different versions. You can have a distortion of bankers, a comfort blanket of bankers, a printing press of bankers, or in calm times, they call it a yawn of bankers as well. There you go. I think other names are available. Uh, right, the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey has told the panel of central banks uh, heads that uh, challenges around the distribution of the vaccine candidate uh, must be accounted for. It's good news, obviously. It, it, it's encouraging, and we need we need we need encouraging signs. But but um, it's true, as um, Jay was saying, that um, yeah, it, it's of course not here yet in terms of the uh, the implementation of it. We conditioned our forecast, which we published last week, on the basis that there would progressively be improvements in uh, in, in the health situation and treatment of, of COVID. So this is obviously news that is supportive of that. But the one point I, I would emphasize is that this, I mean, this year we have seen, I think, the highest levels of, in a sense, calibrated uncertainty. ECB President Christine Lagarde echoed uncertainties around the distribution of a COVID vaccine, adding monetary policy must still factor in the volatile months ahead. What I think is going to be critically important going forward is that the policies that have been in place, which have been extremely helpful, both monetary policy and fiscal policy, uh, help bridge over to the other side of the river and continue to support the economy so that there is as little long-lasting damage as possible. But I don't want to, you know, be exuberant about this vaccination. 
because there are still uh, uncertainty about the logistic, about the transportation, about the rolling out, about the fabrication, about the number of people uh, that will be vaccinated in the course of 20 Well, ECB executive board member Isabel Schnabel has told CNBC exclusively the global economy is on pace for recovery next year following the news of a COVID vaccine breakthrough. Anetta sat down with Schnabel and asked her just how big a game changer she thinks the vaccine candidate could be for the ECB's guidance. This is, of course, excellent news. And I think everybody uh, was very relieved. I mean, if we look at the economic developments, what we've seen is that there was this very strong rebound, I mean, stronger than expected in the third quarter. And I think this is good news in a a sense because it shows that once uh, restrictions are lifted, uh, there actually uh, is the potential uh, to recover quickly. But then uh, we also saw the rise uh, in infections, and this has led to the renewed uh, lockdowns. And then this has, of course, dampened substantially the outlook for the fourth quarter and then um, also for the first quarter uh, of uh, next year. And uh, uh, so then, uh, of course, our outlook um, uh, had become more pessimistic. Uh, And I think the the positive news on the vaccine now basically puts us back in our baseline scenario, I would say, because uh, the the baseline scenario that we formulated uh, already uh, in the middle of the year um, foresees that uh, a vaccine is going to be rolled out in 2021. And uh, so this is not a game changer in that sense, uh, but it kind of uh, leads to slight improvement uh, compared to uh, what we had before that, uh, that news. Um, if you look at the economic recovery, because clearly the recession or the potential again recession um, is more or less led by the service sector, are you thinking uh, that also will have an effect on the strength of the recovery because there's not so much pent-up demand? Yes, exactly. I mean, this was one of the major points also in uh, Christine Lagarde's uh, speech, uh, that uh, this services recession uh, may be very different uh, from a regular uh, recession. And uh, so one question is, how long will the recovery uh, take? Another will be, what are the effects on uh, employment? Uh, I mean, so far we have seen that the unemployment rate has not gone up uh, that strongly, which is mostly uh, due to the public support programs, especially the job retention schemes. It's also due to the fact that uh, some people have actually just stopped working and they do not, uh, uh, they do not count as, as unemployed. So that is what Christine Lagarde called the discouraged uh, workers. And, uh, and therefore, this um, recession is certainly different from others. And what we also see, which I think is important, is that it uh, hits different countries very differently and that it also hits different people within countries very differently. And this uh, actually raises new challenges, uh, mostly for the fiscal side, but of course it also affects monetary policy. Well, uh, ECB board member Schnabel also told Anetta that the monetary and fiscal stimulus will remain crucial in the near term and uh, must not be withdrawn too early, even as uh, a COVID vaccine or COVID vaccines begin to be rolled out. The flexibility is certainly key. I mean, we have seen that in March. The flexibility uh, was 
extremely important to deal with that situation of market turbulence. Uh, of course, we are now in a very different uh, situation than in March because uh, financial conditions uh, are extremely benign and we do not face uh, a market disturbance. And this is also why I think we, uh, we cannot just uh, do uh, the same all over again, but we have to rethink what is the best and most efficient way uh, to do it in order to um, achieve our objectives. There is broad agreement that what is key is that financial conditions remain at this uh, favorable level. And uh, the question is how this can be ensured uh, best. And let me add that monetary policy will not be able to do it alone. We, we also rely on fiscal policy, which has to remain active as long as needed. So monetary and fiscal policy have acted in a very complementary way uh, in the past month, and I think this should continue. So both monetary policy and fiscal policy have to make sure uh, that they are not um, withdrawn uh, too early. And especially at this current time of very high uncertainty, uh, the fiscal side is important uh, because the, the, uh, the private actors may actually be reluctant to spend. Consumers may be reluctant to consume, firms may be reluctant to invest, and this is why then the public expenditure is very important, which may then also spill over to the private spending part. So, Jeff and Karen, Isabel Schnabel there. Look, I, I, I was slightly mocking when I was talking about my collectives for central bankers, and my last one was a yawn of central bankers. Well, thank goodness for a yawn of central bankers because they are stunningly predictable in their dialogue. Who have we heard from today? We've heard from Lagarde, ECB. We've heard from Bailey, Bank of England. We've heard from Schnabel, ECB, uh, stroke Bundesbank as well. And we've heard from Powell as well. And they've all said exactly what our viewers think they were going to say. They were going to say, we want more fiscal. We have to work with fiscal. We can't withdraw stimulus too early. We've got the back of the markets, of society, of economies, more generally as well. So. Thank goodness for the dullness of bankers and their very, very predictable message. If I was a speechwriter at the ECB or the Fed or the Bank of England, my job would be relatively easy at the moment. We've got all options available. We have more tools in our closet as well. We are there. Because when you're seeing the oscillation and, quite frankly, the ineptitude of many of the politicians on a regular basis as well, then you can see how, thank goodness for the markets and thank goodness for society, we have got boring predictability uh, from the central bankers. That's my first point as well. And what are we seeing on the fist? side as well. Well, we're seeing nothing, obviously, coming out of Congress at the moment. And I just literally um, slightly distracted when uh, Schnabel was talking because I was looking at Trump's Twitter feed. And I was looking at what the current president, soon to be ousted, of course, in January, what the current president was looking at in terms of, was he, was he looking at the record 159,501 US cases on COVID? Was he giving empathy to the people who have passed away, who are suffering with it? Was he looking at, at ways to get through this with Fauci and others? No, he was tweeting about one, Hannity, two, Hannity, three, Hannity, four, the Masters, five, voting, six, voting, seven, voting, eight, voting, etc., etc., and Fox ratings as well. This is a president at the moment, and again, I can normally be very apolitical, is refusing to acknowledge the pain being felt by hundreds of thousands of Americans by concentrating on the level that we've always said needs to be sorted out. You cannot move forward with the economy while we have dire effects of COVID-19. 
Let me pick up on the points about fiscal and monetary policy working together. We've heard about this before in the past, but if we think about why it's so relevant now, it reminds me of some of those old war movies. You know where the destination is, you know where you have to get to, but if uh, you have to cross that final bridge that's simply not there, it's been bonded, it's fallen down, it's just not crossable. And if you have to go the long way around, a lot of problems can happen or crop up in the meantime. And that's what we're facing now in markets. We're looking for this vaccine. We know we can arrive at the point eventually that there'll be a vaccine that we can roll out. It will support economies. It will get us back to the old way of living effectively. But getting there, there are so many problems in the meantime, so much pain to try and cover. And that's where central banks and governments will have to work together. And we think about the past. We always talk about monetary policy being a blunt interest, uh, blunt instrument. Often we talk about cuts or, or hikes. But if you think about the policy now, where do we need the stimulus? We needed very targeted areas of the economy, very hard hit areas that are going to need support. Monetary can't do all of that heavy lifting at this point. And if you also think about Europe and the timing of COVID, it's hit different countries at different points in time, in Italy in particular, at the start of the year. The crisis is now deeper in other parts of Europe. It's very hard to have monetary policy set at a central bank at a point in time to manage some of the problems, which is why fiscal needs to step up more uh, than ever before. Trouble is they're broke, aren't they? Uh, and that's the reality of this. Look, we had the federal deficit hitting $284 billion, uh, in the first months of the fiscal year here. The uh, data released by the Treasury on Thursday showed federal spending fueled by COVID-19 relief measures reached $522 billion US dollars. The government took in $238 billion in receipt from taxes. Governments are going to struggle to step up with the fiscal spend unless they do what they've increasingly been doing, which is rely on the central banks to continue to fund that spending. And this is the catch-22. The Fed is already buying $80 billion of bonds every month here. That is providing the crutch for the federal government here to live beyond its means. And governments are living beyond their means. And at some point, surely, some decisions have to be taken about what is saved and what is let go. Because on this basis, we're ultimately just going down a path to financial ruin. At some point, the central banks can no longer keep distorting the pricing mechanism in the markets that they operate. Otherwise, we will get to a point where they become ineffective. And that is what we saw in Japan. We don't want Japanification in the Western economies as well. So I think, you know, it's all well and good for them all to sit around the table and say, we can do more. There's more in the toolbox. The reality is they've done a heck of a lot already with balance sheets up around, what, 11, 12 trillion dollars here. We need to start thinking about some other solutions that manage this crisis but also appreciate that we can no longer burden the next generation, your children, my children, Steve's children, with the debt from the hard decisions not being taken. That's the traditional way of thinking, but uh, I mean, we're just looking at funny numbers now. Uh, is yeah. there a non-traditional way of thinking? <laughs> well, where, where else is the magic money tree, the, the Karen? Where that, are we going to shake the tree and get the, the money from? The view is that if you, you shrink the economy, allow this economic scarring to continue, that you're never going to get back to where you were pre-crisis and you're going to have much smaller growth as a result. So if you support these industries so they can grow eventually down the track, you get back to that starting point quicker so you can minimise the pain and pay back the debts that you're talking about. But otherwise, She's still got these large numbers to deal with, but a much smaller economy to pay Where off Where does debts. the money come from to stimulate the demand? 
the demand necessary to make the economic activity happen. If you start from a basis of heavy, heavily indebted anyway, and we start to see the cost of servicing that debt rise, 10-year Treasury is back up at 1% here. If it carries on going, the risk-free rate rises. The cost of servicing all this debt is going to go up. Isn't it interesting that corporate demand for borrowing now is starting to tail off a little bit as rates are rising? Because companies are saying, hang on, if we didn't get the money in already, it may be too late at this point. Yeah, the sovereign level, though, you're talking about some sort of bond vigilante. I'm not sure where they are anymore. Uh, have we seen them well, in, in recent the years? Bond vigilantes <laughs> have been slain. Well, the, the trouble is, if you, if you look at the portfolios now that all the geniuses own that are stuffed full of corporate and sovereign debt, a lot of that is now offside already. I think I saw a, a number saying something like three quarters of the bonds held in portfolios currently are offside because they were bought at yields that were much lower than they are now, which mm. is terrifying. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. NBC News projects Joe Biden has won Arizona, taking his total tally in the Electoral College to 290 votes compared with President Trump's 217. Meanwhile, Trump continues to refuse to concede as he presses on with legal challenges, claiming voting irregularities. This despite a coalition of federal and local election security officials releasing a statement saying, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes or was in any way compromised, Steve. Well, as I mentioned, um, not hearing it from the president, but the U.S. has set a new coronavirus daily case record. More than 159,000 cases reported, according to NBC News. It's the ninth day in a row that over 100,000 cases were reported. This is California became the second state after Texas to count more than one million. That's one million cases, one state, two states now. And Chicago and Detroit have issued month-long stay-at-home advisories. Well, moving on, the Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, hit out of Republicans in Washington for failing to prioritize the pandemic response amid the current political stalemate. Stop the circus and get to work on what really matters to the American people, their health and their economic security. They seem to have a mental block to doing the right thing, a moral block for respecting what it's doing to America's families. UBS chief U.S. economist uh, Seth Carpenter has told CNBC that a virus vaccine may help boost American growth by more than 1% next year. But speaking to Jamana at the bank's virtual European conference, he added the size of a stimulus plan to support the recovery could be limited by a Republican-controlled Senate. So we're actually a little bit pessimistic here, I think, relative to where the market is. So we have uh, written down about a $450 billion package that comes in Q1 of next year. So we've assumed that there's no more fiscal policy in calendar year 2020. And then by the time we get to the beginning of next year, we assume that a, a slimmed down version of what has been the Senate Republican plan. So about $450 billion. My sense, talking with clients globally, is that the market is probably expecting something closer to a trillion dollars. Uh, so it would take a real outperformance relative to my expectations for it to be an upside risk uh, to the market. Now, I will say, 
our number of 450 assumes that the Senate remains in Republican hands on the possibly unlikely chance that the Democrats get control of the Senate, then I think you, you might be looking at roughly twice that, so not quite a trillion dollars. So, so you would really need uh, the, the Democrats to take the Senate to ratify market expectations, I think. Mm. And certainly it's something that the Fed have been quite vocal about. We heard from uh, Chairman Powell last week, and he emphasized yet again that he would like to see more done on the fiscal stimulus front. In the absence of that, uh, people are expecting the Fed to provide even more stimulus come the December meeting. What do you think the Fed can do here? What, what more tools do they have in their toolbox uh, to sort of tide the economy over into next year? The, that, I think, is the tricky question right now. So uh, Powell and, in fact, central bankers globally, before the COVID shock, were clamoring for more fiscal policy. And then the COVID shock only made those, those cries that much more uh, clarion. Um, and I think part of the reason is that the number of tools left for the Fed are actually quite limited. So the Fed has got short-term interest rates to zero. They've ruled out negative interest rates. They promised to keep interest rates at zero for as long as they possibly can uh, until inflation comes back. So that tool is exhausted. Their special lending facilities, they've sort of declared victory by virtue of there not actually having been much take up. So those tools seem like they're exhausted. And so all they have left are their asset purchases, the the QE purchases. And there, uh, to provide just a bit more accommodation, I think they take those purchases where right now they're buying from two-year securities out to 30-year securities, and they focus those purchases just at the long end of the curve, so from five years and longer, to try to put a little bit more downward pressure on longer-term yields. We have seen the 10-year yield pop up. It had been down in the 60s. Now it's uh, just shy of 1%. So at the margin, they can probably provide just a bit more accommodation that way. One of the other things that emerged this week is the news of a potential breakthrough in a vaccination that's been met with euphoria by markets and with the, uh, everyone alike, really. I think all of us want to see the end of this pandemic. What does that breakthrough mean for your forecasts and uh, how does the rollout of the vaccination affect the trajectory of the U.S. economy in 2021? Key, key question. So the two biggest uncertainties coming into the fourth quarter were what was going to happen with the election and uh, what was going to happen with the virus and the vaccines. I think the news from Pfizer was very encouraging. The 90 plus percent efficacy rate uh, very much exceeded at least our analyst expectation for where efficacy was going to go. And it gives you this possibility for a, an early vaccine scenario. So what we said was under the baseline, <clears throat> things take time, there are setbacks, efficacy rates might be in the 50 to 60% rate. Under that scenario, uh, reported COVID cases in the United States probably don't fall toward to zero or close to zero until the fourth quarter of 2021. The news this week says there's a different path. We might get, the, uh, get a situation where reported cases of COVID in the United States fall very close to zero in Q2 of next year. That six-month difference, that two-quarter difference matters a, a lot. It means an extra one to one and a quarter percentage point gain in GDP next year. To put that into uh, complete numbers, under our baseline view for a, a President Biden with a split Congress scenario, we're looking at something like two and three quarters percent growth next year. If everything goes right and Pfizer's results are indicative of where we're going, that number could actually be more like 4%. So it really will be a bit of a game changer.